two hobbits. Two hobbits. Two, two hobbits. hobbits. Two hobbits. Oh man, ah, oh, Jonesy, that I think that's the last of them, buddy. Oh, I think I think we finished. I think we got her. I think we got her. Look, Joshua, if we thought it was enough work. Uh, uh, like boxing all this stuff up, then, 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 or, or packing all these things up in boxes. Man, unpacking's the worst. Jeez. Ugh. Oh no! Yeah, no kidding. We got a bunch of crap, Joshua. We really do, and and that's honestly something that, um, yeah. Anytime that you're going to move or something like that, it's always good to just kind of go through everything and either donate stuff or do a garage sale or, or even just throw it away because it, it like stuff just piles up you just you just accumulate so much crap through, over the years and golly don't we know it because we just yeah packed up all these boxes and then unpacked it and uh yeah let me tell you man i'm i'm ready just to just to sit down and kick my hobbit feet up because they're they're tired before we do that we should do this and say welcome back to the two hobbits podcast my name is jonesy and i am a hobbit and i'm joshua and i'm also a hobbit and uh yes we uh after you know a, a whole bunch of adventures that turned around to be all for naught we're, we're finally re-established settled back into our hobbit hole uh hobbit hole sweet hobbit hole and uh yeah uh jonesy i even remember last episode saying that um you know kind of pizza and beer being a quintessential moving packing food and drink uh and likewise i i also find that after unpacking nothing quite quenches your first like a like a nice like a nice cool beverage yeah absolutely mm. so to that end joshua we have a special what's in our hobbit's goblet tonight because you might remember listeners and fans and everyone around the hobbity world there in the triborough area our, my old gaffer Gershon returned from a holiday in Australia, and Joshua, he brought us a couple things. Mm-hmm. Number one, an ominous black book that we'll get into in a minute here, yeah. but he also bought us Foster's Beer, in- Foster's famous beer brand. It's Foster's, it's Australian for beer. Australian for beer, yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I'm, i number one, I know I'm kind of... Uh, even a little intimidated because by the size of these cans that, that these are coming in, um, you know, like maybe for like you, you humans or whatever, it doesn't look like much, but for us poor wee hobbits, this is, this is almost like a keg. Um, but, uh, and, uh, and yeah, I also kind of, it was, it was weird. I was, I was kind of hearing talk uh, here in, here in Hobbiton about you and me even considering drinking this other thing called, called four loco. Um, oh, oh no. Yeah. Cause apparently someone was like, oh no. Cause we heard you talking about something with four and it might drive you crazy. And so they put two and two together and, and came up with four loco, but no, like we're little cute frail hobbits. There's no way our, our little hobbity bot hobbity bodies can, uh, handle something like four loco, man. That's, that's more like, like territory for a wizard. <laughs> Whew. Yeah. Yeah. No. 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 no, no, no. no. Uh, and, and yes. And I also appreciated that uh, Gershon even got us a couple. There's a couple different ones here. One's in a one's in a blue kind of can. One's in a green one. Uh, the blue one is lager. Green is premium. I guess. I guess we'll figure out what that means in a bit. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, that's, see, which is almost as ominous as four loco flavors true yeah true like what, what what does lager mean like I, okay so yeah in the same way that we know what fruit punch is <laughs> what the hell does lager mean yeah and well and even my i've i've kind of dabbled a little bit in home brewing and so i know like like lagering is a specific kind of technique that you do and then it of course produces a a specific type of beer but uh, right 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 but like but what that means when an australian a, does it yeah. i just i just don't know i just don't know that's that is as nebulous yeah as like the flavor gold yeah gold or black What's or gold? it's a heavy metal put it in your body yeah. no but no we have premium ale and lager <laughs> and i'm not hating on fosters i just no not at all it, i'm i'm, I'm i just had giddy. that thought like you know they're Literally, as we we know what fruit punch is, we know what it tastes like. We know what apple, what sour apple is, what that tastes like. Mm -hmm. But yeah, what the hell does that mean? Yeah, to, what does that know? mean? I don't, I don't know. So when my dad was in college, nowadays it's a dry campus, but back in the seventies, um, times were a little little looser, a little freer, and uh, yeah, like people would throw uh, uh, little little parties with like uh, kegs and stuff there in um, uh, some of the uh, uh, apartments. Like you do, yeah. Like you do in college and responsibly and all that. And so uh, this one's... No, no, it was the 70s. It was <laughs> Probably not. Literally zero response. Yeah, if, if ever. It was, an, it, was, it was Animal House. It was, it was Animal House. One day after track practice, my dad and one of his teammates, um, who was a thrower, uh, shot put in discus, uh, Shewitt, they were walking up to the apartments there. They're going to go back over there. And, um, and they saw this guy like really struggling to get a keg out of the out of his uh, uh pickup bed and he was like trying to do the whole kind of like walking it back and forth walking back and forth and then he had to go up like two two flights of stairs and uh and just looking at this guy my dad and his buddy shuet re realized like there's no way that this guy is gonna do anything yeah and so they're like just kind of they, they they wave him down and start chatting a little bit and the guy says oh yeah i'm gonna gonna have a kegger later on um and then my, my dad asked him, oh, well, do you want some help up the stairs with that? The guy says, oh, man, yeah, that, that, that'd be great. And then Shewitt, who's like, uh, you know, like 6'7", six, 6'8", six, 320, like as a thrower is. 6'20", killing for fun. Killing yeah. for fun. Um, yeah. He sees this guy just kind of still struggling with it to even get it to the to the edge of the uh, truck bed. Oh, man. And so she was just like, God damn it, and just picks this thing up, puts it on his shoulder in one like fell swoop one one smooth motion and just marches this keg of beer up the stairs and the guy's eyes get as big as like dinner plates he's like whoa that's awesome that's fantastic <laughs> he's like you guys are welcome to come over and like i won't even charge you a cover for the keg you you can drink it's like all right cool man <laughs> but yeah just i just i just have this perfect image of my mind of this like enormous like germanic uh, shot put guy he's like red pencil neck geek yeah let me have that and he just <laughs> just sets that on his shoulder marches it up the stairs like nothing <laughs> oh man that's too good yeah any okay but enough enough uh story time is there one in particular you want to start with do we do we want to well, let's just let's go with lager. Let's start with the usual and let's go with lager, and then we'll end up with uh, premium and see if it's. Because here's my thought: okay. if you do lager, because I reckon lager is the base. Like, sure. Yeah. 
So then the premium male should, for all intents and purposes, be a step up, right? Should should be a step up, or at least some sort of discernible difference, and uh, yeah, and lateral movement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, well, I th- I yeah, think I'm gonna have to. Yeah, I think I'm gonna have to put all my Hobbit weight into opening this uh, <laughs> can here. But here here we go. <laughs> okay. That's... All right. Well, Jonesy, I'm excited. So, bottoms yeah. up, man. Cheers, Joshua. Oh boy, I'm back in college. Oh yeah. Oh, there it is. Oh yep, yep. Remember my weird Foster's phase? Let's just break all <laughs> kayfabe for a sec. Yeah. Remember my Foster's phase oh, from like yeah. 2009 to like 2011, and I I only drank Foster's <laughs> bottles bottles of sake. Mm. <laughs> but it is. It's like that's <sighs> that's um. I I also think there's something to be said about that. Like having very. Uh, clearly defined periods in your life when you just like really lean into something so that years later it's like oh yeah I can have a Foster's and then you're immediately transported back to college years or or whatever Um, so yeah man this is great this is great do you have the and this just we're already broke kayfabe let's break it even harder Mm -hmm. we broke the fourth wall instead of fifth I have brewed in the USA on the lip of my can, and it is bringing me the hell down. Yeah, I because I, I know, I, I know, I know that it's not. It's like how Corona's like not actually Mexican anymore, but right. Yeah, and, and but, man, and on the side there it says brewed in the U.S. Um, with U.S. and imported ingredients, so they don't even necessarily specify that it, the ingredients are even imported from Australia. But you know what? That's that's. Just the way the didgeridoos, I guess. <laughs> I hate you. Stop recording. I've been really, I've been bad Podcast about that, Podcast is man. over. I've been bad. I've, I've been doing terrible puns all day long, and I don't know why. <laughs> so I'll, so I'll try to lock uh, it up. I can't make too many promises, but I'll try to lock it up and not be too, no, too stupid no, with fine. all my puns. <laughs> no, it's well and also is probably just as disorienting as uh drinking an australian beer that wasn't made in australia or um like the running joke being that everyone's standing on their heads um over there but um but yeah so so anyway yeah not only am i uh interested in in this fosters thing but i'm also very interested in this book that uh dear sweet gershon also gave us this this thing called the um uh let's see here the necromicone necromicone necromican um i mean if you want to get all npr about it sure but i thought it was just the necromicon Oh, that makes that makes a whole lot more sense. That makes a lot more sense. Okay, well, yeah, this sounds this looks like yeah. fun. What what could yeah. what could possibly go wrong from um, reading this book called the Necronomicon? What could possibly go wrong? Yeah. Nothing, right, Joshua? No, because no, we're two hobbits and we're uh, joyful and delightful, and we're gonna drink some drink some of this Fosters and read some Necronomicon. Heck yeah. I, th- I think it's going to be Lovecraft by Forsters. <laughs> Have we made that joke yet? Because I we just do did. it. No, yeah, yeah. I love it. I love it. 
All righty. Well, yeah, let's just, uh, let's see here. Let's thumb open let's crack to... crack this tome. Yeah, let's thumb open to a page here and see what, uh, see what pops up. Oh, hey, I got one. Hmm. The Cats of Ulthar. Oh, well, that sounds great. I like cats. I love cats. In fact, I, I even have three of them. <laughs> so now this is, this is, man, what a great place to start. Two hobbits yeah. with some with some with some beverages in our hobbit goblets, uh, reading a story about cats. <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> oh boy! Well, Jonesy, why don't we just so neither of our voices get too tired? What if we kind of like trade off on paragraphs? And I think that'll I think that's pretty fair too. We can kind of split it up and I, yeah, yeah. I think your terms are agreeable. Alrighty. Well, and and I guess with that said, maybe. Maybe uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, start us off here, take the lead with The Cats of Ulfar by H.P. Lovecraft. It is said that in Ulthar, which lies beyond the river sky, no man may kill a cat. And this I can verily believe as I gaze upon him who sitteth purring before the fire. For the cat is cryptic and close to strange things which men cannot see. He is the soul of antique Egyptus, and bearer of tales from forgotten cities in Meroe and Ophir. He is the kin of the jungle's lords, and heir to the secrets of hoary and sinister Africa. The Sphinx is his cousin, and he speaks her language. But he is more ancient than the Sphinx, and remembers that which she hath forgotten. In Ulthar, before ever the Burgess forbade the killing of cats, there dwelt an old, an old cotter and his wife, who delighted to trap and slay the cats of their neighbors. Why they did this I know not, save that many hate the voice of the cat in the night, and take it ill that cats should run stealthily about yards and gardens at twilight. But whatever the reason, the old man and his wife took pleasure in the trapping and slaying of every cat which came near to their hovel, and from some of the sounds heard after dark many villagers fancied that the manner of slaying was exceedingly peculiar. But the villagers did not discuss such things with the old man and his wife, because of the habitual expressions of their withered faces of the two, and because their cottage was so small, and so darkly hidden under spreading oaks at the back of a neglected yard. In truth, much as owners of cats merely took care that no cherished pet or mouser should stray toward the remote hovel under the dark trees, where through some unavoidable oversight a cat was missed and sounds heard after dark. The loser would lament impotently and console himself by thanking fate that it was not one of his children who had thus vanished. For the people of Ulthar were simple and knew not whence it is all cats first came. One day a caravan of strange wanderers from the south entered the narrow cobbled streets of Ulthar. Dark wanderers they were and unlike the other roving folk who passed through the village twice every year. In the marketplace they told fortunes for silver, and bought gay beads from the merchants. What was the land of these wanderers none could tell, but it was seen that they were given to strange prayers, and that they had painted on the sides of their wagons strange figures with human bodies in the heads of cats, hawks, rams, and lions. And the leader of the caravan wore a headdress with two horns and a curious disc betwixt the horns. There was in this singular caravan a little boy, with no father or mother, but only a tiny black kitten to cherish. The plague had not been kind to him, yet had left him his small furry thing to mitigate his sorrow. 
and when one is very young, one can find great relief in the lively antics of a black kitten. So the boy, whom the dark people called Menes, smiled more often than he wept as he sat playing with his graceful kitten on the steps of an oddly painted wagon. On the third morning of the wanderer's stay in Ulthar, Menes could not find his kitten, and as he sobbed aloud in the marketplace, certain villagers told him of the old man and his wife, and of sounds heard in the night. And when he heard these things, his sobbing gave place to meditation, and finally to prayer. He stretched out his arms toward the sun and prayed in a tongue no villager could understand. Though indeed, the villagers did not try very hard to understand, since their attention was mostly taken up by the sky and the odd shapes the clouds were assuming. It was very peculiar, but as the little boy uttered his petition, there seemed to form overhead the shadowy, nebulous figures of exotic things of hybrid creatures crowned with horn-flanked discs. Nature is full of such illusions to impress the imaginative. That night, the wanderers left Ulthar and were never seen again, and the households were troubled when they noticed that in the village there was not a cat to be found. From each hearth the familiar cat had vanished, cats large and small, black, gray, striped, yellow, and white. Old Cranon the Burgomaster swore that the dark folk had taken his cats away in revenge for the killing of Mini's kitten, and cursed the caravan and the little boy. But Nith, the lean notary, declared that the old cotter and his wife were more likely persons to suspect, for their hatred of cats was notorious and increasingly bold. Still, no one durst complain to the similar to to the sinister couple, even when little Adol the innkeeper's son vowed that he at twilight had seen all the cats of Ulthar in that accursed yard under the trees, pacing very slowly and solemnly in a circle around the cottage, to a breast as if in performance of some unheard of beast, unheard of right of beast. The villagers did not know how much to believe from the so small a boy, and though they feared that the evil pair had charmed the cats to their death, they preferred not to chide the old cotter till they met him outside his dark and repellent yard. So Ulthar went to sleep in vain anger. And when the people awaked at dawn, behold, every cat was back at his accustomed hearth. Large and small, black, gray, striped, yellow, and white, none was missing. Very sleek and fat did the cats appear, and sonorous with purring content. The citizens talked with one another of the affair and marveled not a little. Old Cranon again insisted that it was the dark folk who had taken them, since cats did not return alive from the cottage of the ancient man and his wife. But all agreed on one thing, that the refusal of all the cats to eat their portions of meat or drink their saucers of milk was exceedingly curious. And for two whole days, the sleek, lazy cats of Ulthar would touch no food, but only doze by the fire or in the sun. It was fully a week before the villagers noticed that no lights were appearing at dusk in the windows of the cottage under the trees. Then the lean Nith remarked that no one had seen the old man or his wife since the night the cats were away. In another week, the burgomaster decided to overcome his fears and call it the strangely silent dwelling as a matter of duty. Though in doing so, he was careful to take with him Shang the blacksmith and Thul the cutter of stone as, a witness, as witnesses. And when, they broke, and when they had broken down the frail door, they found only this. Two cleanly picked human skeletons on the earthen floor, and a number of singular beetles crawling in the shadowy corners. 
There was subsequently much talk among the Burgesses of Ulthar. Zaph, the coroner, disputed at length with Nith, the lean notary, and Cranon and Shang and Thule were overwhelmed with questions. And even little Adol, the innkeeper's son, was closely questioned and given a sweetmeat as reward. They talked of the old cotter and his wife, of the caravan of dark wanderers, of small meanies and his black kitten, of the prayer of meanies and of the sky during that prayer, of the doings of the cats on the night the caravan left, and of what was later found in the cottage under the dark trees in the repellent yard. And in the end, the Burgesses passed that remarkable law, which is told of by the traders in Hatheg and discussed by the travelers in Nier, namely, that in Ulthar, no man may kill a cat. Ooh, that is... It's a good one. That is a good one. That's a really good one. I mean, it's it's not good insofar as there was this, like, horrid like pair of retirees who were just killing cats that's not the good part but that they got their comeuppance at the end i think that's a that's that's the good part that's the good part um, eaten like killed and eaten by cats it's pretty it's pretty it's pretty rough yeah, yeah i would not i would not want to have that happen to me <laughs> but it'd also be adorable because yeah cause little, adorable. well and, and and at least um I would also just just the part about um, like all of the cats in this village that for was it two or three days they wouldn't eat anything like that yeah. would that would freak me out because like I mentioned I have I have three cats and they have a weird like internal clock because because every every two days uh, the Mrs. Hobbit and I divvy up some wet food and give it to them all if it's that day if it's that day like all three of them are just sitting in the dining room like okay humans tick tock it's 6 p.m come on wet food time and and like they they you you could set your watch to when these cats know that they're supposed to get wet food and yeah like if if for like three days like they weren't interested in any of that they weren't interested in any dry food and they just like slept with their little cat bellies hanging out um <laughs> yeah that would that would be that'd be a little disconcerting <laughs> but still adorable and still adorable like oh you killed those mean old people didn't you yeah oh i'm not even that mad not even that mad well and of course like cats are also uh famous for for being really neat and tidy and like bathing and so like of course you're not going to find any any blood or any things like that because they'll just like Take a little cat bath and and look up all the evidence, all the incriminating evidence. Um, so yeah, yeah. There's still it's gonna be like a month before I let it lick me though. That's not yeah. gonna happen. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's still maybe. Well, it's already bad enough. Um, you, you already have to feel like you need to sleep with one eye open um, with with cats in the house. But even then, like. Yeah. Once, like what they're saying there, once everybody kind of put all the pieces together, yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of people, decide, a lot of households, a lot of families deciding to uh, maybe sleep in shifts so that uh, <laughs> Fifi or Fluffy or whatever, Mr. Whiskers wouldn't, uh, wouldn't turn on you. <laughs> I also want to point out, and I'm sure that this means absolutely nothing, 
But Menes is also the name of a first dynasty Egyptian pharaoh. Yeah, I thought... These people are very clearly Egyptian. Like, it talks about the 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 weird animal-headed humans, mm-hmm. and then the, like, set of horns with a disc in the middle. That's very, that's very, very clearly Egyptian. Like... Yeah. Well, and, um... Uh, and we know that Lovecraft was an Egypt nerd. Like, right. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fun. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely, um, definitely inspired by Egypt, if not even necessarily taking place around those parts it's it's certainly yeah got a nice little yeah. uh dash of uh egyptophilia is that what it would be phil i think yeah i think that's phil yeah. phil egyptus pro something like that pro egyptophilia because it's not quite egyptian yet they just oh, true. Kind of allude to it yeah or, or like su- yeah. pseudo and, 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 like, mm-hmm. they were more nuts for cats than I know. we are today, I think. Like, <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, mummifying them and having, like, just, like, cats hanging out in their temples. And that was it, like, to, to, to show fealty to the Egyptian pantheon. You just, like, feed, feed cats. Yeah. <laughs> also... Cranon is racist, calling it right now. Ooh, the dark people took him. Yeah. Get, th- that I bet mean... your hubcaps went missing too, huh, cat? Huh, chief, huh? Yeah. Good jerk. It can, be, it can mean lots of other things beyond just uh, complexion or, like, melanin. No, nah, but literally, like, people show up and the cats go missing and he blames the people. Like, dude, come on. Maybe it wasn't them. Yeah. You have people living in your village that openly kill cats. Like, yeah, you're a jerk. Right. Yeah. Why don't you, yeah, clean, clean up your own house before you start throwing stones there, buddy. Yeah. Clean up your own Cranon, village your there, Burgomaster. <laughs> Which is also really funny. Cause like, that's a very German, that's a very German like title. <laughs> I know, but then, like, I feel, because wasn't, isn't that the name of the Iceman is, like, Atal or something? I don't know. Oh, yeah. Which, there's no way that Lovecraft could have known that. Right. And there's also no way that we could have known that Lovecraft could have known that if we're two hobbits and don't know what the Necronomicon is. But whatever continuity is my bitch, so. I just also get a kick out of, yeah, maybe this town in, like, Proto-Egypt or Pseudo-Egypt, what if it did have, like, an uber-German... Burgomaster who like walks is like was ist low? Wir 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 haben sie eine Katzen. Wo 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 ist die Katz? He's just like wearing wearing his leader hose and kind of like tromping along. And meanwhile, he's just in a desert or whatever. But he's the only know. one. Everyone else is in like yeah, exactly. Tunics, but he's in like full later hose. Yeah. 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 Like everyone else has like the like linen kind of like loincloth skirt things. But yet he has his like alpine hat and leader hose. <laughs> <laughs> and weirdly enough, there's always like German polka behind him. Yeah. Every, yeah. yeah somehow every time, he, that's why he's mayor. That's why he's burgermeister. <laughs> Because every time he talks, he is a Lovecraftian horror in and of himself. <laughs> every time he speaks, he just projects oom pom music. Yeah. Like, Future Mark cut oom pom music into that horror. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, and, and that was that was a short, relatively sweet, has a nice moral, don't don't kill cats. No Don't kill cruelty. cats. Um, yeah, well, and, and even... um, I also... Maybe to kind of tie it up, I also like the whole concept about 
Yeah, cats that like the cat and the sphinx are cousins, um, mm-hmm. but but the cat is actually older and more like mysterious and unknowable. He remembers that what that which the sphinx has forgotten. That's also kind of cool. That's such I, a good that's, line. That's a great line. That's a great line. So yeah, cats of Ulthar. But really quick, not to overwrap your wrap up, but. Mm-hmm. I just want to give my favorite line. Oh, yeah. And it's when he's talking about how delightful a, a little black kitten can be. That is, man, that is. And who hasn't watched a little kitten of any uh, any type? Hell, any type of cat. Like, old, young, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, they, cats just... just kind of having fun, doing their own thing. is It's delightful to watch. I, and well, if you disagree with me, go to the internet. Because right. they find it... agree with me. Like You'll find, well, it, and, and there are so many subreddits. There are so many twitter accounts um yeah i love bodega cats shout out to bodega cats on twitter (laughs) god they're great that's a good one um there there's also uh oh man on on reddit there's uh our noodle bones that's a Mm -hmm. good one Mm -hmm. where they're like sleeping but like all contorted around um there's our cats standing up where it's cats just on their hind legs looking very funny um on Twitter, I just found this recently, and I may get the title wrong, and I don't know their handle off the top of my head, but I know the profile is called, uh, um, it's like Cats Curing Depression, or Cats Will Cure Your Depression. Aww. There's also, uh, there's a different one, Cats Where They Shouldn't Be. That's a good, that's a good Twitter profile. Too. I've seen, I and think that's is... a subreddit, and it's like, I don't own a cat, oh, there's okay. a cat sleeping on their, like, just on their couch in the middle, in the, in the middle of the sunspot, just... I don't own a cat. This is yeah. weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yes, that you are absolutely right to um uh highlight that line too, Jonesy. That yeah, there's nothing more delightful and fun and adorable than than just a little black kitten. Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. All right. Well, hey, that was a great man. Yeah. What a what a great way to start here. Surely it can only go up from here, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um Okay, well let's let's uh, bid adieu to the cats from Ulthar, uh, and let's see here. Let's see if we can find another one. But yeah, let's uh, yeah turn the page here, Joshua. Turn the page, and and so far this uh, Foster's Lager is is lagering, I guess. So I'm Bon Jovi in this. I'm so about much. halfway there. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't know. that's that's real critical <laughs> of myself tonight. I don't know what's wrong with me. Ah, you're. You're beautiful. No, You're you a get beautiful out of there with that, you. Mister. You flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> All right. Ooh. Well, this uh, this this next sort of section here, uh, maybe maybe not quite as um, at least cheerful by the title, but this looks like the doom that came to Sarnath. Um, and, and sure, it's maybe not as cheery as like. The cats of Ulthar, but but maybe by doom they mean um, a new bake shop <laughs> that has cookies and cakes and pastries to delight the masses. So the doom that came maybe to Sarnath is diabetes. <laughs> yeah, or maybe everyone's waistline grows a little bit more. Because they can't stop eating these delicious Behold, cakes. I have I appeared, know. the avatar of woe and diabetes. <laughs> it is me, Wolfer Brimley, the doom that came to Sarnath. Wolfer Brimley. Oh, diabetes <laughs> testing kits. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> now let's try and read a goddamn story. <laughs> it's time. Let's do it. Doing it up. Um, why don't you why don't you lead us off here since I since I did last time? Yeah. The Doom That Came to Sarnath by H.P. Lovecraft. There is in the land of Minar a vast still lake that is fed by no stream, and out of which no stream flows. Ten thousand years ago, there stood by its shore a mighty si- the mighty city of Sarnath, but Sarnath stands there no more. It is told that in the immemorial years when the world was young, before ever the men of Sarnath came to the land of Minar, another city stood beside the lake, the gray stone city of Ib, which was old as the lake itself, and peopled with beings not pleasing to behold. Very odd and ugly were these beings, as indeed are most beings of a world yet inchoate and rudely fashioned. It is written on the brick cylinders of Kadapharon that the beings of Ib were in hue as green as the lake and the mists that rise above it, that they had bulging eyes, pouty, flabby lips, and curious ears, and were without voice. It is also written that they descended one night from the moon in a mist, they in the vast still lake and the great stone city Ib. However this may be, it is certain that they worshipped a sea-green stone idol chiseled in the likeness of Bokrug, the great water lizard, before which they danced horribly when the moon was gibbous. And it is written in the papyrus of Ilarnak that they one day discovered fire, and thereafter kindled flames on many ceremonial occasions. But not much is written of these beings, because they lived in very ancient times, and man is young and knows little of the very ancient living things. After many aeons, men came to the land of Minar, dark shepherd folk with their fleecy flocks, who built Thra, Ilarnek, and Kadatharon on the winding river Ai, and certain tribes more hardy than the rest pushed on to the border of the lake and built Sarnath, at a spot where precious metals were found in the earth. Not far from the gray city of Ib did the wandering tribes lay the first stones of Sarnath, and at the beings of Ib they marveled greatly, but with their marveling was mixed hate, for they thought it not meet that beings of such aspect should walk about the world of men at dusk. Nor did they like the strange sculptures upon the gray monoliths of Ib, for those sculptures were terrible with great antiquity. Why the beings and the sculptures lingered so late in the world, even until the coming of men, none can tell, unless it was because the land of Minar is very still and remote from most other lands, both of waking and of dream. As the men of Sarnath beheld more of the beings of, of Ib, their hate grew, and it was not less because they found the beings weak and soft as jelly to the touch of stones and arrows. So one day the young warriors, the slingers, and the spearmen, and the bowmen marched against Ib, and slew all the inhabitants thereof, pushing their queer bodies into the lake with long spears, because they did not wish to touch them. And because they did not like the gray sculptured monoliths of Ib, they cast these into, also into the lake, wandering from the greatness of the labor however the stones were brought from afar, as they must have been, since there is not like them in the land of Minar or in the lands adjacent. Thus of the very ancient city of Ib was nothing spared, save the sea-green stone idol chiseled in the likeness of Bokrug, the water lizard. 
This the young warriors took back with them to Sarnath as a symbol of conquest over the old gods and beings of Ib, and as a sign of leadership in Menar. But on the night after it was set up in the temple, a terrible thing must have happened, for weird lights were seen over the lake. And in the morning the people found the idol gone, and the high priest Taran Ish lying dead, as from some fear unspeakable. And before he died, Taran Ish had scrawled upon the altar of chrysolite with coarse, shaky strokes the sign of doom. After Taran Ish, there, are, there were many high priests in Sarnath, but never was the sea green stone idol found. And many centuries came and went, wherein Sarnath prospered exceedingly, so that only the priests and old women remembered what Taran Ish had scrawled upon the altar of chrysolite. Betwixt Sarnath and the city of Ilrenek, a rose a caravan route, and precious metals from the earth were exchanged for other metals, and rare cloths and jewels, and books and tools for artificers, and all things of luxury that are known to the people who dwell among the winding river I and beyond. So Sarnath waxed mightily, and learned and beautiful, and sent forth conquering armies to subdue neighboring cities, and in time... There sat, there sate upon the throne in upon a throne in Sarnath, the king of all the land of Menar, and many lands adjacent. The wonder of the world and the pride of all mankind was Sarnath the Magnificent. Of polished desert quarry marbled were its walls, in height three hundred cubits, and in breadth seventy-five, so that chariots might pass each other as men drave them along the top. For full five hundred stadia did, did they run, being open only on the side toward the lake where a green stone seawall kept back the waves that rose oddly once a year at a festival of the destroying of Ib. In Sarnath were fifty streets from the lake to the gates of the caravans, and fifty more intersecting them. With onyx were they paved, save those whereon the horses and camels and elephants trod, which were paved with granite. And the gates of Sarnath were as many as the landward ends of the streets, each of bronze and flanked by the figures of lions and elephants carven from some stone no longer known among men. The houses of Sarnath were of glazed brick and chalcedony, each having its walled garden and crystal lakelet. With strange art were they builded, for no other city had houses like them. And travelers from Thra and Ilarnek and Kadatharan marveled at the shining domes wherewith they were surmounted. But more marvelous still were the palaces and the temples and the gardens made by Zokar, the old king. There were many palaces, the last of which were mightier than any in Thra or Ilarek or Kadatharon. So high they were that, within, that one within might sometimes fancy himself beneath only the sky. Yet when lighted with torches, dipped in the oil of Dother, their walls showed vast paintings of kings and armies, of a splendor at once inspiring and stupefying to the beholder. Many were the pillars of the palaces, all of tinted marble and carven in the designs of surpassing beauty. And in most of the palaces, the floors were mosaics of beryl and lapis lazuli and sardonyx and carbuncle and other choice materials so disposed that the beholder might fancy himself walking over a bed of the rarest flowers. And there were likewise fountains which cast scented waters about in pleasing jets arranged with cunning art. Outshining all others was the palace of the kings of Menar and of the lands adjacent. On a pair of golden crouching lions rested the throne, many steps above the gleaming floor, and it was wrought of one piece of ivory, though no man lives who knows where such a vast piece could have come. 
In that palace there were also many galleries and many amphitheaters where lions and men and elephants battled for, at the pleasure of the kings. Sometimes the amphitheaters were flooded with water conveyed from the lake in, a mighty, in mighty aqueducts that were enacted with stirring sea fights or combatants betwixt swimmers and deadly marine things. Lofty and amazing were the seventeen tower-like temples of Sarnath, fashioned of a bright multicolored stone not known elsewhere. A full thousand cubits high stood the greatest among them, wherein the high priests dwelt with a magnificence scarce less than that of the kings. On the ground were halls as fast and splendid as those of the palaces, where gathered throngs in worship of Zo-Kalar and Tamash and Lobon, the, great, the chief gods of Sarnath whose incense-enveloped shrines were as the thrones of monarchs. Not like the icons of other gods were those of Zokalar and Tamash and Laban, for so close to life were they that one might swear the graceful bearded gods themselves sate on the ivory thrones. And up unending steps of shining zircon was the tower chamber, where from the high priests looked out over the city and the plains and the lake by day, and at the cryptic moon and significant stars and planets and their reflections in the lake by night. Here was done the very secret and ancient rite in, de in detestation of Bokrug, the water lizard, and here rested the altar of chrysolite, which bore the doom scrawl of Taran-ish. Wonderful likewise were the gardens made by Zokar, the olden king. In the center of Sarnath they lay, covered, covering a great space and encircled by a high wall, and they were surmounted by a mighty dome of glass, through which shone the sun and moon and planets when it was clear, and from which were hung fulgent images of sun and moon and stars and planets when it was not clear. In summer the gardens were cooled with fresh odorous breezes, skillfully wafted by fans, and in winter they were heated with concealed fires, so that the, in those gardens it was always spring. There ran little streams over bright pebbles, dividing meads of green and gardens of many hues, and spanned by a multitude of bridges. Many were the wa waterfalls in their courses, and many were the lilied lakelets into which they expanded. Over the streams and lakelets rode white swans, whilst the music of rare birds chimed in with the melody of the waters. In order terraces rose the green banks adorned here and there with bowers of vines and sweet blossoms, and seats and benches of marble and, and porphyry, and were many small shrines and temples where one might rest or pray to small gods. Each year there was celebrated in Sarnath the Feast of the Destroying of Ib, at which time wine, song, dancing, and merriment of every kind abounded. Great honors were then paid to the shades of those who had annihilated the old ancient beings, and the memory of those beings and of their elder gods was derided by dancers and lutenists crowned with roses from the gardens of Zokar. And the kings would look out over the lake and curse the bones of the dead that lay beneath it. At first the high priests liked not these festivals, for there had descended amongst them queer tales of how the sea-green icon had vanished and how Taran-ish had died from fear and left a warning. And they said that from their high tower they sometimes saw lights beneath the waters of the lake. But as many years passed without calamity, even the priests laughed and cursed and joined in the orgies of the feasters. Indeed, had they not themselves in their high tower often performed the very ancient and secret rite and detestation of Bokrug, the water lizard? And a thousand years of riches and delight passed over Sarnoff, wonder of the world and pride of all mankind. 
Gorgeous beyond thought was the feast of the thousandth year of the destroying of Ib. For a decade it had been talked of in the land of Manar, and as it drew nigh, there came to Sarnath on horses and camels and elephants, men from Thra, Ilnarek, and Kadathion, cities of Manar and the lands beyond. Before the marble walls on the, appro- uh, on the appointed nights were pitched the pavilions of princes and the tents of travelers. Within his banquet hall reclined Nargis Hay, the king, drunken with ancient wine from the vaults of the conquered Panath, and surrounded by feasting nobles and hurrying slaves. There were eaten many strange delicacies at that feast, peacocks from the distant hills of Implan, heels of camels from the Banzig Desert, and spices from the Sidathrian groves, pearls of wave-washed metal dissolved in the vinegar of Thra. Of sausage there were an untold number, prepared by the subtlest of cooks in Almanar, and suited to the palate for of every feaster, but most prized of all the viands was the were the great fishes from the lake, each of vast size, and served upon golden platters set with rubies and diamonds. Whilst the king and his nobles feasted within the palace, and viewed the crowning dish as it awaited them on golden platters, others feasted elsewhere. In the tower of the great temple, the priests held revels, and in pavilions without the walls, the princes of, neighbor, of neighboring lands made merry. And it was the high priest, Gnai Ka, who first saw the shadows that descended from the gibbous moon into the lake, and the damnable green mists that arose from the lake to meet the moon, and to shroud in a sinister haze the towers and the domes of fated Sarnath. Thereafter those in the towers and without the walls beheld strange lights on the water, and saw that the grey rock Akurion, which was wont to rear high above it near the shore, was almost submerged. And fear grew vaguely yet swiftly, so that the princes of Ilarnek and of Far Rokal took down and folded their tents and pavilions and departed for the river Ai, though they scarce knew the reason for their departing. Then, close to the hour of midnight, all the bronze gates of Sarnath burst open and emptied forth a frenzied throng that blackened the plain, so that all visiting princes and travelers fled away in fright. For on the faces of this throng was writ a madness born of horror unendurable, and on their tongues were words so terrible that no hearer paused for proof. Men whose eyes were wild with fear shrieked aloud of the sight within the king's banquet hall, where through the windows were seen no longer forms of Nagra's hay, and his nobles and slaves, but a horde of indescribable green voiceless things with bulging eyes, pouting flabby lips, and curious ears, thing which danced horribly, bearing their paws golden platters set with rubies and diamonds, and containing uncouth flames, and the princes and travelers, as they fled from the doomed city of Sarnath, on horses and camels and elephants, looked upon looked again upon the mist begetting lake, and saw the grey rock, Akuaton, it was quiet was quite submerged through all the land of Manar and the land adjacent spread the tales of those who had fled from Sarnath and caravans sought that accursed city and its precious metals no more. It was long the heir of many tra- of any traveler went th- thither, and even then, when only the brave and adventurous young men of yellow hair and blue eyes who were of no kin to the men of Manar. These men indeed went to the lake to view Sarnath, but though they found the vast still lake itself in the grey rock, Akurion, which still high above it near the shore, near, near the shore, 
They beheld not the wonder of the world and pride of all mankind, where once had risen the walls of three hundred cubits and towers yet higher, now stretched only a marshy shore, and once, and where once had dwelt fifty million of men, now crawled the detestable water lizard. Not even the mines of precious metal remained. Doom had come to Sarnath. But half buried in the rushes was spied a curious green idol of stone, an exceedingly ancient idol, coated with seaweed and chiseled in the likeness of Bokrug, the green water lizard. That idol, enshrined in the high temple at Ilarnik, was subsequently worshipped beneath the gibbous moon throughout the land of Minar. That's a good one. It's, it's all right. It gets a little wordy there. It does get I, wordy. I definitely recognize that he got paid by the word. Yeah. So why not describe every single friggin' detail? <laughs> but I was most impressed by the uh, innumerable amount of sauces at this banquet. Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, and in fact, uh, let me see if I can't. Uh... So when when you were reading that part, I was reminded of um so so uh this uh ancient greek playwright aristophanes um was a was uh, was a comedian would would write comedies and he is credited um for uh creating the longest greek word that is 183 letters and 78 syllables what the hell and it comes from his play. Um, the The Greek title is Ecclesia Zeusai, but roughly translated, okay. that's like women at the assembly, women in Congress, that that, that kind of thing. And towards the end of the play, because like Greek tragedy, excuse me, Greek comedies would always end with like a like a feast and a party and uh, stuff like that. And um, and in this comedy is this large, like enormous word, and it's the name of a dish that's served at this uh, kind of festival banquet thing. So as he's going on about like, oh, all these, as, as Lovecraft is going on about all these, like, oh, these dishes and tasty sauces and things like that, um, I immediately thought of this uh, dish from the Ecclesia Zeusai, and I can try... Oh my god, like it actually runs off the page on Wikipedia. <laughs> Don't do it. Just that magic is too strong for you, Joshua. Okay, Pull true. yourself back from the void. True. But but uh very quickly, so this super long dish is it's a it's a fricassee with at least sixteen sweet and sour ingredients, including Jesus. It it, it and, and it's this big compound word, and so that's where all the ingredients come from. But it includes okay. includes uh fish slices fish of a certain kind of uh, shark, uh, rotted dogfish, um, okay. uh, some maybe some type of fennel, uh, some okay. sort of crab, shrimp, or crayfish, honey, um, a, bl- uh, a kind of sea fish known as a blackbird, ironically, uh, wood pigeon, domestic pigeon, rooster, uh, the roasted head of a dab chick, um, hair, that is to say rabbit, um, 
new wine that's been kind of like boiled down um and maybe like a chicken wing <laughs> hmm. and so it's this like because in a comedy it's silly so it's this like very silly over the top um special dish a special fricassee that's served at the party here and so when, and so as, as we're reading that part of the doom of sarnath is like oh here comes aristophanes and his enormous uh, dish <laughs> here it is here it is here we are um yeah i was also uh like just kind of hearing all those over the top and overlong um descriptions of sarnath and the buildings and all this stuff yeah like i was getting all it's it's pretty much like any sort of bronze age civilization just all kind of smushed together yeah just mashed all up into it yeah because like they talk about like all the gardens and the hills and uh, the walls and these amphitheaters that they would flood to do naval battles which that was totally a thing that happened it was coliseum yeah Yeah, that totally happened at the um is that the fleet is it the flavian amphitheater i think that's the technical name for the coliseum yeah sure yeah the flavian amphitheater aka the coliseum um yeah like that and then like uh all the different jewels and things so yeah it's pretty much like any sort of like all the bronze age civilizations and even extending a little past that all kind of smushed together it's like hey look at how awesome this place is um and then the doom comes doom which also I'm going to take a little, I'm, I'm by no means an anthropologist. Nah, do it up. But I'm a little skeptical that such an impressive civilization could arise if it's a city um, kind of built by a lake that doesn't have any inlets or outlets. Because over time, that just like salinates and turns into a, a sea, right? Because like without fresh water coming in or out, like all the minerals, they just kind of build up and build up, and it just turns into seawater. And I'm yes, and yes, yeah, okay. And and I'm skeptical of the feasibility of this city of what was it, fifty million or whatever. <laughs> fifty fifty million, yeah. Yeah, yeah it'd yeah. be it'd be pretty damn hard to uh, keep that sort of a city going without a reliable fresh water supply, unless. Unless the carven idol of uh, the water lizard. Bokrug. Yeah, Bokrug. Unless that also doubled as um, like a water cooler or something. <laughs> now, I, I, my, my number one rebuttal is this is Lovecraft and he was an astronomer, not a geologist sure. and or geographer sure. but this is weirdly reminiscent of um robert e howard robert e howard was the guy that did conan the barbarian him and lovecraft were buddies mm-hmm. and he often has these great big you know sweeping city locations and a lot of those are set on the lake and even in his world um there is this large inland sea right which i take to mean great lakes mm-hmm. because and- like what just like the idea of are Great Lakes here in America. True. Like, and I mean, you have several states that like border it, wrap around it, and really they're all sort of the same body of water mm-hmm. connected, whatever. Oh, yeah. No, I've, I've but, played, yeah. I have played enough of uh, Sid Meier's Civilization 
to know the benefits of, of uh, founding a city by, <laughs> by a body of water. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Uh, it, I mean, I'm just saying maybe in, maybe in this instance, uh, I, maybe there is some extra kind of Lovecraftian woo-woo going on to help um, could be water or who knows maybe there's also an elaborate like trade system that they have going on like yes yes please take all of our precious gems and metals the likes of which are not seen anywhere else in these parts uh for some water (laughs) so but they talk about aqueducts so sarnath is california pretty much that's kind of what i give us your water well you can come yeah 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 yeah, you can. We'll export to you the stars. Yeah, <laughs> come and check it. Yeah, Hollywood, gotta gotta love it here in California, baby. We're a fucking desert. Yeah, like. yeah I, I can totally see the uh, the uh, Hollywood kind of sign there, but in either like with Sarnath or um, the 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 land of Menar or whatever. But um, <laughs> but also. Menar. Okay, well, and this is the other kind of funny thing. So around these parts here in the Midwest, there is mm-hmm. kind of, I, I guess it's the equivalent of like a Lowe's or uh, a Home Depot. But no, but, but there's another kind of uh, company, corporation, whatever, um, and it's called Menards. Ah, uh, yes. And so, yeah, when we were reading about the land of Menard, I was thinking like, oh, yeah, I've been there. I picked up some drywall screws. <laughs> <laughs> Many were the screws of the land of Menards. <laughs> Drywall. I can't think of any off the Deck. top of my head. Tenpenny nails. Yeah, ten. And drill bits of all types. Diamond tipped and so forth. Did you want to cut marble? Because you could totally do it in the land of Menards. And at regular saws. And at regular intervals, one could hear um, uh, holy choirs chanting the song. Save big money at Menards. <laughs> The other, the other big thing that stood out to me mm. is these people were dicks for a thousand years. Yeah. Imagine. They saved wine for a thousand yeah, years to be thousand dicks years. about Just it. Holy crap, which, man. Which that was also, so I, I know I mentioned like late Bronze Age, but also I was getting like a lot of Rome versus Carthage vibe. Like yeah. that was totally yeah, yeah. like to the effect that you, um, you like defeat this country, which has like a lot of things going for it in its own right, like, like Carthage is this awesome place. And then Rome's like, okay, enough of this. We're going to like invade your land, burn everything down. sow the fields with salt and like destroy as many artifacts or traces or evidence that you ever existed. Um, we're just going to wipe you off the face of the earth, which yeah, is like kind of your couch. That's yeah. That's kind of what happened to uh, the, the Greystone city of Ib there. Which, um, which, yeah, like I, I, I know at least kind of being classics adjacent, like there are a bunch of classics scholars who are like, goddamn Romans, like you couldn't save some things from Carthage, you couldn't save like a couple books or uh, some paintings, like you, you just couldn't do that because we, we, we know very little, not, not nothing, but we like especially compared to Greece or. Uh, Rome, uh, yeah, we know we know next to nothing about uh, Carthage. Yeah, which is a shame because what if it was never there? What if it's just like Roman <laughs> disinfo? Yeah, 
It was like, like yeah, we totally we totally took out those bastards down in Carthage. We got them. Yeah. We got them by the pen. Yeah, it was like like there's huge... like vulpus news in Rome. <laughs> Can you believe it? Yeah. The general, the the the, the general yeah. Hannibal is marching his elephants over the Alps. Yeah. A preposterous move. They they can they will be stemmed by the glorious tide of Rome. All hail Caesar. It was a big yeah. It was a big psyop. We're like ah oh, shit. Like the plebs are starting to get pissed that we're taking all these taxes. What do we got? Which is also essentially like the the plot line to Watchmen, right? Like ah oh, crap. Yeah. Like we're all the, there's all this internal strife and whatever. Like ah oh, shit. Let's we'll, we'll just let's just make up this place. Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, uh what was that one place? That, um, yeah, uh, Aeneas, this, like, Trojan prince, <laughs> where do the myths say that he ended up? Um, well, well, no, like, he, he he founded Rome, but then he also ran to this uh, Queen Dido, and where was she? Car- Carthage. Yeah, Carthage. Let's just go with that. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, there goes Dr. Memphis yeah. <laughs> walking through. But but the bad guy's name is still Ozzy Mendez. Yeah, also yeah. fitting. Yeah, also fitting. Also has to be. Yeah. <laughs> which which, <laughs> like with the um, cats of Ulthar and the uh, the doom that came to Sarnath, we can also see some of the again the whole like oh this the untold eons when this happened and a vaguely Egyptian Bronze Age Babylonian little sprinkle of Rome versus Carthage, um, Punic Wars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, so, so even if that wasn't quite his forte as much as astronomy, like still definitely drawing upon um, that tradition. Yeah. Which is awesome, because I love it. Well, yeah, and even some of the names too, like uh, uh, Kadatheron, that sounds, that has a, a pretty Greek kind of sound. At least to my ears, I figured that was uh, unknown Kadath, which that which was in, which should be if I if I get it right, it should be like in Antarctica, I guess. Part of it is or something. I don't mm-hmm. know, but yeah. Well, and that's always the funny. But thing like too. Conan talks about uh, Kadath in the South too. So oh oh, because okay. again, Howard and Lovecraft were good buddies. Yeah. It, well, yeah, and there's but, sort of an extended kind of universe or parallel universe with some of their work and stuff yeah yeah they, yeah, they kind of run concurrent to each other but yeah, yeah exactly exactly well hey yeah. that was i mean uh i'm like i i kind of want to say that i feel bad for the people of sarnath but also like you were saying jonesy like they were they were being sore winners they were definitely they were dicks for a thousand years <laughs> we're gonna keep your booze and like i came to your house party punched you in the face kissed your girl and then stole your 30 rack and i've been yeah. drinking that 30 rack for the last five years <laughs> like yeah. every sixth month of my victory over you at right. your lame-ass track house party <laughs> when the theater kids prevailed or something i don't know <laughs> insert narrative here like i ah screw screw the sarnathians yeah yeah, they're a bunch of uh, be be humble in victory. That's the lesson of the story. Be humble in victory. If you're if one of your priests goes crazy and scrawls doom in coarse, shaky strokes, um, maybe maybe save up some food and water too. I don't know. <laughs> Drink some damn water. Drink some damn water. 
Okay. Yeah, so we got some cats mm -hmm. and we got some doom. Got some cats and some but doom. I want to point out super quick, these have been weirdly hobbity episodes because we didn't discuss cats, you know, properly, but right. we love cats and mm -hmm. cats of Ulthar is pretty cat heavy. Mm -hmm. And then Doom that came to Sarnath, there was quite a bit of, you know, gardening and architecture and aesthetically pleasing things, and maybe not everything has to be Doom all the time, but right. I can only hope that this next one, the the statement of Randolph Carter Maybe it's like a, hey, this is what I have to say about this. It could be fun. I don't know. Yeah, a statement could be about anything. And, and maybe it's about, maybe this is even the most hobbity Lovecraft story yet. However, I think before we even go uh, into that, there's there's some other business to attend to. Because uh, Jonesy, I, I guess I've even surprised myself that I have, in fact, done some work on this uh, what is to a hobbit enormous can of uh, fosters here what is to a human an enormous can mm -hmm. but yes these are True. yeah these are what 25.4 ounces yeah these are two beers in one like yeah you get you get two for the price of one essentially so well in two stories one beer we're, we're we're crushing it joshua we're moving we're moving right along and and in fact um i think i think uh at least as far as i can prognosticate i think i'm ready for the premium whatever that i think i am too may mean well here here we go again yeah all right that was an angrier open that was i think i saw that was markedly different in like Ooh. sound profile yeah and Ooh. i'm here we go all right here it is well, cheers buddy mm-hmm well, that's an all right beer right there oh yeah yeah, that is. I could, well, I could take down a couple of those. I think. Well, maybe two of two of those. But yeah, yeah I could take down one more than one of these. Yeah. Yeah, that is. That Hell, is that's e nice. I, that's even better than the uh, logger. I I reckon. Yeah, I which and again, like uh, especially for, like if you're, out in the, Hobbit garden doing work, or if you're out fishing or something like that, then yeah, probably something a little, lighter and chiller like a logger. Um, but as as is well documented, um, you and I both like the kind of, I don't even know if this one's darker necessarily. kind of looks like it. If I can peel. Yeah, it's got to be. Lager's dark, or ale's darker than lager, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, or at least heavier, like by definition, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So this is quite nice. This is quite nice. Um, yeah, it is. Cool. Yeah. All right. Not bad at all. Yeah. Well, with that, <clears throat> with that, um, and, and that's even something to look forward to. Um, so let's uh, let's take a look. Let's take a look then at the statement of Randolph Carter by H.P. Lovecraft. I repeat to you, gentlemen, that your inquisition is fruitless. Detain me here forever, if you will. Confine or execute me, if you must have a victim to propitiate the illusion you call justice. But I can say no more than I have said already. Everything that I can remember. I have told with perfect candor. Nothing has been distorted or concealed, and if anything remains vague, it is only because of the dark cloud which has come over my mind, that cloud and the nebulous nature of the horrors which brought it upon me. Again, I say I do not know what has become of Harley Warren, though I think, almost hope, that he is in peaceful oblivion, if there be almost so blessed a thing. It is true that I have for five years been his closest friend and parcel sharer in his terrible researches into the unknown. I will not deny, though my memory is uncertain and indistinct, that this 
witness of yours may have seen us together, as he says, on the Gainesville Pike, walking toward Big Cypress Swamp at half past eleven on that awful night. That we bore electric lanterns and spades and a curious coil of wire with attached instruments, I will even affirm. For these things all played a part in the single hideous scene, scene which remains burned into my shaken recollection. But of what followed, and of the reason I was found alone and dazed on the edge of the swamp the next morning, I must insist I know nothing save which I have told you over and over again. You say to me that there is nothing in the swamp or near it which could form, form the setting of that frightful episode. I reply that I know nothing beyond that which I saw. Vision or nightmare it may have been. Vision or nightmare I fervently hope it was. Yet it is all that my mind retains of which took place on those shocking hours after we left the sight of men. And why Harley Warren did not return. He or his shade. Or some nameless thing I cannot describe. Alone can tell. As I have said before, the weird studies of Harley Warren were well known to me and to some extent shared by me. Of his vast collection of strange, rare books on forbidden subjects, I have read all that are written in the languages of which I am master. But these are few as compared to those in languages I cannot understand. Most, I believe, are in Arabic, and the fiend-inspired book which brought on the end, the book which he carried in his pocket out of the world, was written in characters whose like I never saw elsewhere. Warren would never tell me just what was in that book. As to the nature of our studies, must I say again that I no longer retain full comprehension? It seems to me rather merciful that I do not, for they were terrible studies, which I pursued more through reluctant fascination than through actual inclination. Warren always dominated me, and sometimes I feared him. I remember how I shuddered at his facial expression on the night before the awful happening, when he talked so incessantly of his theory, why certain corpses never decay but rest firm and fat in their tomb for a thousand years. But I do not fear him now, for I, for I suspect that he has known horrors beyond my ken. Now I fear for him. Once more I say that I have no clear idea of our object on that night. Certainly it had much to do with something in the book which Warren had carried with him that ancient book in undecipherable characters which had come from India in a, a month before. But I swear I do not know what it was that we were expecting to find. Your witness says he saw us at half past eleven on the Gainesville Pike, headed for Big Cypress Swamp. This is probably true, but I have no distinct memory of it. The picture seared into my soul is of one scene only and the hour must have been long after midnight, for a waning crescent moon was high in the vaporous heavens. The place was an ancient cemetery, so ancient that I trembled at the manifold signs of immemorial years. It, it was in a deep, damp hollow, overgrown with rank grass, moss, and curious creeping weeds, and filled with a vague stench which my idle fancy associated absurdly with rotting stone. On every hand were the signs of neglect and decrepitude, and I seemed haunted by the notion that Warren and I were the first living creatures to invade a lethal silence of centuries. Over the valley's rim a wan, waning crescent moon peered through the noisome vapors that seemed to emanate from unheard-of catacombs, and by its feeble, wavering beams I could distinguish a repellent array of antique slabs, urns, cenotaphs, and mausolean facades 
all crumbling, moss-grown, and moisture-stained, and partly concealed by the gross luxuriance of the unhealthy vegetation. My first vivid impression of my own presence in this terrible necropolis concerns the act of pausing with Warren before a certain half-obliterated sepulchre, and of throwing down some burdens which we seemed to have been carrying. I now observed that I had with me an electric lantern and two spades, whilst my companion was supplied with a similar lantern and a portable telephone outfit. No word was uttered, for the spot and the task seemed known to us. And without delay we seized our spades and commenced to clear away the grass, weeds, and drifted earth from the flat, archaic mortuary. After uncovering the entire surface, which consisted of three immense granite slabs, we stepped back some distance to survey the charnel scene, and Warren appeared to make some mental calculations. Then he returned to the sepulchre, and using his spade as a lever, sought to pry up the slab lying nearest to a stony ruin which may have been a monument in its day. He did not succeed, and motioned to me to come to his assistance. Finally, our combined strength loosened the stone, which we raised and tipped to one side. The removal of the slab revealed a black aperture, from which rushed an effluence of miasmal gases so nauseous that we started that we started back in horror. After an interval, however, we approached the pit again, and found the exhalations less unbearable. Our lanterns disclosed the top of a flight of stone of stone steps, dripping with some detestable ichor of the inner earth, and bordered by moist moist wow and bordered by moist walls encrusted with nitre. And now, for the first time, my memory records verbal discourse, Warren addressing me at length in his mellow tenor voice, a voice singularly unperturbed by our awesome surroundings. I'm sorry to have to ask you to stay on the surface, he said, but it would be a crime to let anyone with your frail nerves go down there. You can't imagine, even from what you have read and from what I've told you, the things I shall have to see and do. It's fiendish work, Carter, and I doubt if any man without ironclad sensibilities could ever see it through and come up alive and sane. I don't wish to offend you, and heaven knows I'd be glad enough to have you with me, but the responsibility is in a certain sense mine, and I couldn't drag a bundle of nerves like you down to probable death or madness. I tell you, you can't imagine what the thing is really like but I promise to keep you informed over the telephone of every move. You see, I have enough wire here to reach to the center of the earth and back. I can still hear in memory those coolly spoken words. And I can still remember my remonstrances. I seemed desperately anxious to accompany my friend into those sepulchral depths, yet he proved inflexibly obdurate. At one time he threatened to abandon the expedition if I remained insistent, a threat which proved effective, since he alone held the key to the thing. All this I can still remember, though I no longer know what manner of thing we sought. After he had secured my reluctant acquiescence in his design, Warren picked up the reel of wire and adjusted the instruments. At his nod I took one of the latter and seated myself upon an aged, discolored gravestone close by a newly by the newly uncovered aperture. Then he shook my hand, shouldered the coil of wire, and disappeared with, within that indescribable ossuary. For a moment I kept sight of the glow of his lantern, and heard the stone staircase he encountered, and the sound died away almost as quickly. I was alone, yet bound to the unknown depths 
by those magic strands whose insulated surface lay green beneath the struggling beams of waning crescent moon. In the lone silence of that hoary and deserted city of the dead, my mind conceived the most ghastly fantasies and illusions, and the grotesque shrines and monoliths seemed to assume a hideous personality, a half-sentience. Amorphous shadows seemed to lurk in the darker recesses of the weed-choked hollow, and to flit as in some blasphemous ceremonial procession past the portals of the moldering tombs in the hillside. Shadows which could not have been cast by that pallid, peering crescent moon. I constantly consulted my watch by the light of my electric lantern, and listened with feverish anxiety at the receiver of the telephone, but for more than a quarter of an hour heard nothing. Then a faint clicking came from the instrument, and I called down to my friend in a tense voice. Apprehensive as I was, I was nevertheless unprepared for the words which came up from that uncanny vault in accents more alarmed and quivering than any I had heard before from Harley Warren. He who had so calmly left me a little while previously now called from below in a shaky whisper more portentous than the loudest shriek. God, if you could see what I am seeing. I could not answer, speechless. I could only wait. Then came frenzied. The, then came the frenzied tones again. Carter, it's terrible, monstrous, unbelievable. This time, my voice did not fail me, and I, and I poured into the transmitter a flood of excited questions. Terrified, I continued to repeat, "Warren, what is it? What is it?" I can't tell you, Carter. Too utterly beyond thought. I, I dare not tell you. No man could know it and live. Great God, I never dreamed of this! Stillness again, save for my now incoherent torrent of shuddering inquiry. Then the voice of Warren in a pitch of wilder consternation. Carter, for the love of God, put back that slab and get out of this if you can. Quick, leave everything else and make for the outside. It's your only chance. Do as I say and don't ask me to explain. I heard, yet was unable to repeat my frantic questions. Around me were the tombs and the darkness and the shadows below me some peril beyond the radius of human imagination. But my friend was in greater danger than I, and through my fear I felt a vague resentment that he should deem me capable of deserting him under such circumstances. More clicking. And after a pause, a piteous cry from Warren. Beat it! For God's sake, put back the slab and beat it, Carter! Something in the boyish slang of my evidently stricken companion unleashed my faculties. I formed and then shouted a resolution. Warren! Brace up, I'm coming! But this, but at this offer, the tone of my auditor changed to a scream of utter despair. Don't! You can't understand! It's too late! They're my own fault! Put back the slab and run! There's nothing else you or anyone can do now! The tone changed again, and this time acquiring a softer quality, as of hopeless resignation. Yet, it remained tense through, ang through anxiety for me. Quick, before it's too late. I tried not to heed him, tried to break through the paralysis which held me, and to fulfill my vow to rush down to his aid. But his next whisper found me still held inert in the chains of, sta of stark horror. You must go. Better one than two. The slab. A pause, more clicking, than a faint voice of Warren. It's over now. Don't make it harder. Come up those damn steps and run for your life. 
losing time. Come on, Carter. The Warren's whisper swelled into a cry, a cry that gradually rose into a shriek fraught with all the horror of the ages. Curse these hellish things! Legions! My God! Beat it! Beat it! Beat it! After that was silence. I know not how many interminable aeons I, was, I sat stupefied, whispering, muttering, calling, screaming into that telephone. Over and over again... Through those aeons, I whispered and muttered and called and shouted and screamed, Warren! Warren, answer me! Are you there? And then there came to me the crowning horror of all. The unbelievable, unthinkable, almost unmentionable thing. I have said that eons seemed to elapse after Warren shrieked forth his last despairing warning, and that only my cries now broke the hideous silence. But after a while, there was a further clicking in the receiver, and I strained my ears to listen. Again, I called down, Warren, are you there? And an answer heard the thing, which has brought this cloud over my mind. I do not try, gentlemen, to account for that thing, that voice, nor can I venture to describe it in detail. Since the first words took away my consciousness and created a mental blank which reaches to the time of my awakening in the hospital. Shall I say that the voice was deep? Hollow? Gelatinous? Remote? Unearthly? Inhuman? Disembodied? What shall I say? It was at the end of my experience and is the end of my story. I heard it and knew no more. Heard it as I sat petrified in that unknown cemetery in the hollow, amidst the crumbling stones and the falling tombs, the rank vegetation, and the miasmal vapors. Heard it well up from the innermost depths of that damnable open sepulcher as I watched amorphous, necrophagous shadows dance beneath an accursed waning moon. And this is what it said. Okay, statement of Randall Carter. What do you it, think? It was, it was a good well, one. Spooky. It was fun. It's again oddly hobbity. Right. They're going into the earth, into a into a hobbit hole of death. Well, and as it were, and even that there's yeah. the there's the two of them. There's there's Randolph Carter and Harley Warren. Uh, to I guess well I guess there's maybe a bit more of a rivalry, but also still like kind of buddies going off on an adventure that the last few steps of which only one of them can take. Um, so, so, so yeah, I, I, I think there's lots of kind of hobbity goodness um, to the statement of Randolph Carter. These, this one is fun for me too, because if you read your Lovecraft, Randolph Carter is this weird reoccurring mm-hmm. character, right? So there's this one, there's the silver key and most famously um, the dream quest yeah. of unknown Kadath where Randolph Carter's like the central character, but pursuant to that, Randolph Carter is also the, uh, I don't remember what relation he is, but he is a relation of Randolph Carter or not Randolph. Oh my God. Statement of Randolph Carter of John Carter of Mars, the Edgar Rice Burroughs. Because again, Lovecraft was friends with all these weird fiction writers. So like they all talk about the same like the same like twenty dudes. It's kind of fun. And yeah. the the other name that, uh, or I guess the other Carter that kind of springs to my mind 
is is there's also Howard Carter, who was an Egyptologist who discovered oh, yeah. uh, uh, the tomb of King Tut, and so and yeah, and so maybe there yeah. maybe there's also um, there was another where was it oh <laughs> on a much on a much more silly note um, poor okay Harley Warren I'm, I'm sure this was a mind melting experience that he encountered and i would never wish to experience that nor would i wish that on anyone else um but the amount of times that he tells carter to beat it of course i just can't help but think of michael jackson's <laughs> just beat it beat it but um but i also get a kick out of this very early telephone thing um yeah the, yeah talking about like i could stretch to the center of the yeah, earth right with the cable. it's like all right no yeah could re- you could really you really? Do, really um and i am not sure if i want to read this in one of two ways uh with if if either like this is really cool like early technology from the like start of the 20th century or if it's just like two um tin cans on a string that <laughs> that's they're like running running down in, into this crypt and it's like a campbell soup can that uh randolph carter is holding up to his ear and he's like screaming into it warren warren why don't you tell me and now i guess i'm giving him a, a jimmy stewart <laughs> Warren, what do you see down there? Brace up, bottom. You can only see it, Carter. Oh, God, Carter, it's horrible. Stupefying, wondrous, magical. Oh, beat it. What do you want, Mary? The waning moon? You just say a word and I'll throw a lasso around it. And you can you can consume it, and it'll be all gibbous and shadowy and flowery there in your gambled roofs, and it'll shoot out your eyes and through your nose, and eons should bigger off Cthulhu photography. Then there's like a little like bell, like a little bell ring or something like that, and little Zuzu says like, "Do you hear that, Daddy? Every time a New Englander loses his mind from an encounter with the Beyond, Amigo gets its wings." Because those are the Migos yeah. singing with their heads in the jars that are vaguely robotic. <laughs> Boy, we really fooled on this whole. Oh, what's this HP Lovecraft right, yeah, guy? Yeah, we oh, let we're... that. We let that. Uh, that that facade drop pretty quick. <laughs> drop that almost as fast as we dropped yeah. our accents. Yeah. Our hobbity accents. <laughs> Oh man! Oh, All right, okay. that's to this. Let's that's cut this one. The, we, we got yeah, one more. I, I think we have one because I'm still here. only, I'm 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 still, like scratching the surface of this gigantic can of Fosters here. So I think we need one more, and I'll try to do. I have, yeah, I have delved slightly deeper than you, Joshua, but it's all right because I'm, I'm I'll yeah, I'm I'm maybe a third or two-fifths 
maybe maybe knocking it half. So 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 yeah, let's let's see if we can't find one more. Knocking yeah, it half. I'm at the I'm at the top of the. See, e. and I would. Oh man, I need to like. Actually, I think I'm pretty. I think we're in the same kind of neighborhood there. So yeah. Ah yeah yep. That's uh these, both these uh Fosters and these uh little Lovecraft stories. I I gotta be honest with you, Jonesy. I'm I'm. I don't think I'm uh in quite as bad of a place as uh randolph carter was but i'm i'm i don't know strangely feeling a little unhobbity you're work you're working on it right you're kind of i feel it too i feel thinner yeah that... and like i don't know like and, and strangely because i know like i'm pretty tall for a hobbit anyway but now i'm feeling like maybe my actual height is more like Six foot four, six foot five. Maybe that's what more my height is. My feet don't feel enormous. Um, this is, uh, uh, I don't want to think about it too much because that's going to put me in a really weird place. But, but since we have a little bit of this Foster's left, since we, you know, we might as well get one more story in. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, well, you know, it's, 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 it's Lovecraft by four stories and we can't end on, you know, mm. three stories. That'd be weird. So, yeah. No, brilliant. That makes sense. We can't, you know, we can't have a, a Forster's beer and fourth story. Um, it's kind of thumbing through, thumbing through here. And this sounds like a, this sounds like a winner. This is um, from beyond. Oh, okay. So like, it'll be like a fun, like, hey, I'm on vacation. Yeah. It's yeah. uh and 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 I know we we hobbits we very rarely kind of venture out of our hobbit holes or hobbit town. We're not usually ones for adventuring because again, we're kind of like that whole four loco thing. What do people think we are? Two wizards, <laughs> um, right? But who knows? Maybe if we hobbits aren't gonna go explore places from beyond, maybe we could read about them. I don't know. That makes yeah. sense to me. Yeah, from beyond by Howard Phillips Lovecraft. Horrible beyond conception was the change which had taken place in my best friend Crawford Tillinghast. I had not seen him since that day, two months and a half before, when he had told me toward, his, toward what goal his physical and metaphysical research was lead, were leading. When he had answered my odd and almost frightened remonstrances by driving me from his laboratory and his house in a burst of fanatical rage, I had known that he had now remained mostly shut in the attic laboratory with that accursed electrical machine, eating little and excluding even the servants. But I had not thought that a brief period of ten weeks could so alter and disfigure any human creature. It is not pleasant to see a stout man suddenly grown thin, and even worse when the baggy skin becomes yellowed or grayed, the eyes sunken, circled, and uncannily glowing, the forehead veined and corrugated, and the hands tremulous and twitching. And if to this there be a repellent unkemptness, a wild disorder of dress, a bushiness of dark hair, white at the roots, an unchecked growth of pure white beard on the face of the once clean shaven, the cumulative effect is quite shocking. 
But such was the aspect of Crawford Tillinghast on the night of his half-coherent message brought me to his door after my weeks of exile. Such the specter that trembled as it admitted me, candle in hand, glanced furtively over its shoulder as if fearful of unseen things in the ancient, lonely house set back from Benevolent Street. That Crawford Tillinghast should ever have studied science and philosophy was a mistake. These things should be left to the frigid and impersonal investigator, for they offer two equally tragic alternatives to the man of feeling and action. Despair, if he fail in his quest, and terrors unutterable and unimaginable if he succeed. Mm. Tillinghast had once been the prey of failure, solitary and melancholy, but now I knew, with nauseating fears of my own, that he was the prey of success. I had indeed warned him ten weeks before, when he burst forth with his tale of what he felt himself was about to discover. He had been flushed and excited then, talking in a high and unnatural, though always pedantic, voice. What do we know, he had said, of the world and the universe about us? Our means of receiving impressions are absurdly few, and our notions of understanding objects infinitely narrow. We see things only as we are constructed to see them, and gain no idea to their absolute, of their absolute nature. Of five feeble senses we pretend to comprehend the boundless complex cosmos, yet other beings with wider, stronger, or different range of senses might not only see very differently the things we see, but might see and study whole worlds of matter, energy, and life which lie close at hand, yet can never be detached with the senses we have. I have always believed that such strange, inaccessible worlds exist at our very elbows, and now I believe I have found a way to break down the very barriers. I am not joking. Within 24 hours, that machine near the table will generate waves acting on unrecognized sense organs that exist in us as atrophied or rudimentary vestiges. Those waves will open up to us many vistas unknown to man and several unknown to anything we consider organic life. We shall see that which dogs howl in the dark and that which cats prick up their ears after midnight. We shall see these things and other things which no breathing creature has yet seen. We shall overlap time, space, and dimension and without bodily motion peer to the bottom of creation. When Tillinghast said these things, I remonstrated, for I knew him well enough to be frightened rather than amused. But he was a fanatic and drove me from the house. Now he was no less a fanatic, but his desire to speak had conquered his resentment, and he had written me imperatively in a hand I could scarcely recognize. As I entered the abode of the friend so suddenly metamorphosed to a shivering gargoyle, I became infected with the terror which seemed stalking in all the shadows. The words and beliefs expressed ten weeks before seemed bodied forth in the darkness beyond the small circle of candlelight, and I was sickened at the hollow, altered voice of my host. I wished the servants were about and did not like it when he said they had all left three days previously. It seemed strange that old Gregory, at least, should desert his master without telling as tried a friend as I. It was he who had given me all the information I had of Tillinghast after I was repulsed in rage. Yet I soon subordinated all of my fears to growing curiosity and fascination. 
just what Crawford Tillinghast now wished of me, I could only guess. But that he had some stupendous secret or discovered or discovery to impart, I could not doubt. Before I had protested at his unnatural his unnatural pryings into the unthinkable, now that he had evidently succeeded to some degree, I almost shared his spirit, terrible though the cost of victory appeared. Up through the dark emptiness of the house, I followed the bobbing candle in his hand of shaking parody on man. The electricity seemed to be seemed to be turned off, and when I asked my guide, he said it was for definite reason. It would be too much. I would not dare, he continued to mutter. I especially noted his new habit of muttering, for it was not like him to talk to himself. We entered the laboratory in the attic, and I observed that detestable electrical machine glowing with a sickly, sinister violet luminosity. It was connected with a powerful chemical battery, but seemed to be receiving no current, for I recalled that in its experimental stage it had sputtered and purred when in action. In reply to my question, Tillinghast mumbled that this permanent glow was not electrical in any sense that I could understand. He now seated near the machine, so that it was on my right, and turned the switch somewhere below the crowning cluster of glass bulbs. The usual sputtering began, turned to a whine, and terminated in a drone is so soft to suggest a return to silence. Meanwhile, the luminosity increased, waned again, and then assumed, and then assumed a pale, Otrur color or blend of colors, which I could neither place nor describe. Tillinghast had been watching me and noted my puzzled expression. Do you know what that is? he whispered. That is ultraviolet. He chuckled oddly at my surprise. You thought ultraviolet was invisible, and so it is. But you can see that and many other invisible things now. Listen to me. The waves from that thing are waking a thousand sleeping senses in us. Senses which we inherit from eons of evolution, from the state of detached electrons to the state of organic humanity. I have seen the truth, and I intend to show it to you. Do you wonder how it will seem? I will tell you. Here Tillinghast seated himself directly opposite me, blowing out his candle and staring hideously into my eyes. Your existing sense organs, ears first, I think, will pick up many of the impressions, for they are closely connected with the dormant organs. Then there will be others. You have heard of the pineal gland? <laughs> I laugh at the shallow endocrinologist, fellow dupe and fellow parvenu of the Freudian. That gland is the great sense organ of organs. I have found out. It is like sight in the end, and transmits visual pictures to the brain. If you are normal, that is the way you ought to get most of it. I mean, get most of the evidence from beyond. I looked about the immense attic room with the sloping south wall, dimly lit by rays which the everyday eye cannot see. The far corners were all shadows, and the whole place took a hazy unreality which obscured its nature and invited the imagination to symbolism and phantasm. During the interval that Tillinghast was silent, I fancied myself in some vast and incredible temple of long-dead gods, some vague edifice of innumerable black stone columns, reaching up from a floor of damp slabs to a cloudy height beyond the range of my vision. 
The picture was very vivid for a while, but gradually gave way to a more horrible conception, that of utter, absolute solitude in infinite, sightless, soundless space. There seemed to be a void and nothing more, and I felt a childish fear which prompted me to draw from my hip pocket the revolver I always carried after dark since the night I was held up in East Providence. Then, from the furthermost regions of the remoteness, the sound softly glided into existence. It was infinitely faint, subtly vibrant, and unmistakably musical, but held a quality of surpassing wildness which made its impact feel like a delicate torture of my whole body. I felt sensations like those one feels when accidentally scratched by ground glass. Simultaneously, there developed something like a cold draft, which apparently swept past me from the direction of, dist of the distant sound. As I waited breath breathlessly, I perceived that both sound and wind were increasing, the effect being to give me an odd sensation of myself as tied to a pair of rails in the path of a gigantic approaching locomotive. I began to speak to Tillinghast, and as I did so, all the unusual impressions abruptly vanished. I saw only the man, the glowing machine, and the dim apartment. Tillinghast was grinning repulsively at the revolver which I had almost unconsciously drawn, but from his expression I was sure he had seen it he had seen and heard as much as I, if not a great deal more. I whispered what I had experienced, and he bade me to remain as quiet and receptive as possible. Don't move, he cautioned, for in these rays we are able to be seen as well as to see. I told you the servants left, but I didn't tell you how. It was that thick-witted housekeeper... She turned on the lights downstairs after I had warned her not to, and the wires picked up sympathetic vibrations. It must have been frightful. I could hear the screams up here in spite of all I was seeing and hearing from another direction, and later it was rather awful to find those empty heaps of clothes around the house. Mrs. Updike's clothes were close to the front hall switch. That's how I knew she did it. It got them all. But so long as we don't move, we're fairly safe. Remember, we're dealing with a hideous world in which we are practically helpless. Keep still. The combined shock of the revelation and of the abrupt command gave me a kind of paralysis, and in my terror, and in my terror, my mind again opened to the impressions coming from what Tilling has called beyond. I was now in a vortex of sound and motion, with confused pictures before my eyes. I saw the blurred outlines of the room, but from some point in space there seemed to be pouring a seething column of unrecognizable shapes or clouds, penetrating the solid roof at a point ahead and to the right of me. Then I glimpsed the temple-like effect again, but this time the pillars reached up in an aerial ocean of light, which sent down one, one blinding beam along the path of a cloudy column that I had seen before. After that, the scene was almost wholly kaleidoscopic, and in the, and in the jumble of sights, sounds, and unidentifiable se sense impressions, I felt I was about to dissolve or in some way lose the solid form. One definite flash I shall always remember. 
I seem for an, for an instant to behold a patch of strange night sky filled with shining revolving spheres. And as I receded, I saw the glowing suns formed of a constellation or galaxy of, unsettled, of settled shape. This shape being the distorted face of Crawford Tillinghast. At another time, I felt a huge animate things brushing past me and occasionally walking or drifting through my supposedly solid body. And I thought I saw Tillinghast look at them as though his better trained senses could catch them visually. I recalled that he had said of the pineal gland and wondered what he saw with this preternatural eye. Suddenly I myself became possessed of a kind of augmented sight. Over and above the luminous and shadowy chaos arose a picture which, though vague, held the elements of consistency and permanence. It was indeed somewhat familiar, for the unusual part was superimposed upon the usual terrestrial scene, much as a cinema view may be thrown upon the painted curtain of a theater. I saw the attic laboratory, the electrical machine, and the unsightly form of Tillinghast opposite me. But of all the space unoccupied by familiar material objects, not one particle was vacant. Indescribable shapes, both alive and otherwise, were mixed in disgusting disarray, and close to every known thing were whole worlds of alien, unknown entities. It likewise seemed that all the known things entered into the composition of other unknown things, and vice versa. Foremost among the living objects were great inky, jellyish monstrosities which flabbily quivered in harmony with the vibrations from the machine. They were present in loathsome profusion, and I saw to my horror that they overlapped, that they were semi-fluid and capable of passing through one another and through what we know as solids. These things were never still, but seemed ever floating about with some malignant purpose. Sometimes they appeared to devour one another, the attacker launching itself at its victim and instantaneously obliterating the latter from sight. Shudderingly, I felt that I knew what had obliterated the unfortunate servants and could not exclude the things from my mind as I strove to observe other properties of the newly visible world that lies unseen around us. But Tillinghast had been watching me and was speaking. You see them? You see them? You see the things that float and flop about you and through you every moment of your life. You see the creatures that form what men call pure air and blue sky. Have I not succeeded in breaking down the barrier? Have I not shown you worlds that no other living men have seen? I heard him scream through the horrible chaos and looked at the wild face thrust so offensively close to mine. His eyes were pits of flame, and they glared at me with what I now saw was overwhelming hatred. The machine droned detestably. You think those floundering things wiped out the servants? Fool, they are harmless. But the servants are gone, aren't they? You tried to stop me. You discouraged me when I needed every drop of encouragement I could get. You are afraid of the cosmic truth, you damned coward. But now I've got you. What swept up the servants? What made them scream so loud? Don't know, eh? You'll know soon enough. Look at me. Listen to what I say. Do you suppose there are really any such things as time and magnitude? 
Do you fancy there are such things as form or matter? I tell you, I have struck depths that your little brain can't picture. I have seen beyond the bounds of infinity and drawn down demons from the stars. I have harnessed the shadows that stride from world to world to sow death and madness. Space belongs to me, do you hear? Things are hunting me now. The things that devour and dissolve. But I know how to elude them. It is you they will get. As they got the servants. Stirring, dear sir? I told you it was dangerous to move. I have saved you so far by telling you to keep still. Saved you to see more sights and to listen to me. If you had moved, they would have been at you long ago. Don't worry, they won't hurt you. They didn't hurt the servants. It was seeing that made the poor devil scream so. My pets are not pretty, for they come out of places where aesthetic standards are... very different. Disintegration is quite painless, I assure you. But I want you to see them. I almost saw them, but I knew how to stop. You are not curious? I always knew you were no scientist. Trembling with anxiety to see the ultimate things I have discovered? Why don't you move, then? Tired? But don't worry, my friend, for they are coming. <gasps> look! Look, curse you, look! It's just over your left shoulder! What remains to be told is very brief, and may be familiar to you from the newspaper accounts. The police heard a shot in old Tillinghast's house and found us there. Tillinghast dead and me unconscious. They arrested me because the revolver was in my hand, but they released me in three hours after they found it was apoplexy which had finished Tillinghast and saw that the shot had been directed at the noxious machine which lay hopelessly shattered on the laboratory floor. I did not tell very much of what I had seen, for I feared the coroner would be skeptical. But from the evasive outline I did give, the doctor told me that I had undoubtedly been hypnotized by the vindictive and homicidal madman. I wish I could believe that, Doctor. It would help my shaky nerves if I could dismiss what I now have to think of the air in the sky about and above me. I never feel alone or comfortable, and a hideous sense of pursuit sometimes comes chillingly on me when I am weary. What prevents me from believing the Doctor is this one simple fact, that the police never found the bodies of those servants whom they say Crawford Tillinghast murdered. The horror from beyond! Can you feel well, it? Jonesy, if I can also maybe pull back the curtain a little, maybe break kayfabe a little. Uh, this, this particular story does have a very endearing place i think in both of our hearts absolutely um does. as we have discussed in previous episodes i was i was a high school teacher um for a number of years and there was one very special very magical semester where you were actually my student teacher and oh, yeah. we were in the same classroom and you were teaching my classes and we would collaborate and talk about pedagogy and all that and more to the point, and we, we said to hell with the mice and men, and we're going to teach some Lovecraft too, you jerks. <laughs> this is also true. So yes, not only did we get to teach 
uh, Lovecraft to high school students. But but above and beyond that, or from beyond that, um, we adapted a handful of Lovecraft short stories into uh, stage plays from beyond being one of those. And uh, yeah, that was a magical, unknowable, <laughs> unthinkable, unperceivable six weeks, six, seven weeks of uh, re- re- rehearsal and performance. <laughs> um, and, and and yes, the student... Uh, uh, but the one student that we cast as Crawford Tillinghast was it was a favorite of ours he's a bright bright young man hilarious and he oh boy did he just lean into the oh man did no he chewed that damn scenery that horribly oh, it, made which, machine machinery <laughs> you but, spent but, three it, weeks on that and that what you gave me <laughs> whatever which, I guess school, to be fair it's high school Who to cares? be fair that was also made by another high school student but but also yeah it was maybe not quite what it but 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 it's also a special moment like about... how many high school students can ever say like oh no I we did Lovecraft for my senior show from oh my god my senior show we <sighs> did Lovecraft for my senior show like that was yeah yes yeah that that remains too you this and I day, like and... wrote a script and it was it was a whole thing it was great yeah it it and and it um and it. It really pushed some boundaries. It pushed us. It pushed our students. We gave uh, some parents nightmares. That's we that's gave legit- some faculty nightmares. The best review I ever had was one of our faculty members, associates, coworkers, whatever the hell you call them in school, going, "I loved it till the ending. That shit was like paranormal activity, and I hated it." <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. And that's the point. That was the point. That was oh man. So so yes yeah, so. From from beyond it again, completely like dropping the whole framing device of oh we're two hobbits and look at this book and blah blah fuck that we're not even no, two hobbits is... anymore we're we're no from beyond is great um but but I I, I did still want to give uh, from beyond it's 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 due diligence mm-hmm. are there any particular moments or or lines that really jump out at you uh, from 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 beyond um as we recorded it i have now updated my twitter profile to my name is mark time and space belong to me jones <laughs> that's a great one. Oh, that's so good that's so good <laughs> well i and i i um like there's there's the whole line and i remember when we were directing this we were trying to figure out how to portray this line on stage where um Crawford says, oh, yeah, this is ultraviolet. Now you can see in the ultraviolet uh, um, uh, light light waves. Yeah. And it was and it was basically just turning on a black light and doing and doing extra stuff. That's at least what we did there. But, yeah, the idea of. Because, yeah, like we're making all sorts of medical advancements and so much of Lovecraft stuff, though, is predicated on a certain hue or color or something. Right, yeah, it's something that you can describe in prose and writing, but like the, but but, but I it always be... hangs me up that it's always like a weird off, like purple pink thing. Yes, yeah, and I don't know in, why beyond... necessarily, but like, especially like with the most recent, um, like the color out of space with Nicolas Cage. Mm-hmm. Did you watch that one or? Right, it's it's I I haven't quite gotten to it, but it is. Absolutely on my list because that that was another one of the uh, short stories that we 
yeah. adapted and directed. Yeah, and, absolutely. And I think but it is his because... whole thing, like it was, or not his, but like it was like a bright pink kind of purple looking thing. And I've always kind of only seen it as a bright pink purple looking thing. Yeah, and, and, and I, I wonder if like that's is. what you think ultraviolet is like as humans, or I don't know. But the way that we perceive color is a mixing of like red and blue and green, right? Yes. And then there are some people who have a certain genetic, and and I also not only do we have do 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 people generally have receptors for red and blue and green, but also there are some people who are born with the ability to see like a fourth. And I think it's like yellow, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, you get and yeah red, uh, red, yeah, what red, blue, green, and then yeah, you get a yellow rod that can see. Uh, it you see a fourth kind of, you see more of the spectrum. Yeah, and so I wonder if like if if there was a way to sort of mimic that for us people who don't have that fourth cone or whatever, um, or 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 even like I. Like, have you seen the, um, oh, what are they called? The, like, the, like, sunglasses or the glasses that kind of help people with color blindness oh, perceive? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, which that blew my mind because I knew about that. And I was like, okay, but how does that actually work? And so I, so I had to look it up. And it, and it, it, it cause, cause it's polarized, it's filtered. And apparently what happens is like the, the red and the green cones, um, for uh, uh, people with certain forms of color blindness, they overlap a bit. And so these glasses that are polarized, they filter out the overlapping part mm -hmm. so that the red and the green that is different is more distinct. And like, yeah. that's how they work. Um, and so, yeah, like if there was something like that, if there was something to the effect of like, oh, here's these glasses or um, here's a pill that you take to <laughs> see, to like, to like grow uh, yellow perceiving cones in your eyes or whatever. <laughs> wouldn't that, wouldn't that be some something? <laughs> well, Joshua, it's funny. You mentioned this pill because at the bottom of this box that we got from Gershon from Australia, it, it looks like a gel tab, a, a gel pill. There's two of them. Let's, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, we might as we, Might as we, well, right? We, we we've consumed the 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 Foster's beer from Australia. We've led. We, we have read the Necronomicon. Like, I got to assume be this is part to. of it too, right? Like, yeah. Before yeah, we do could, this, before be what I can only assume will be just you know a happy walk down Sunshine Lane. Maybe we mm -hmm. ought to do this and let our dear listeners know where they can find us. Oh yeah, yeah. That's a very good. That's a very good point. Um, I don't know what's on the other side of this pill, but what I do know is that for Two Hobbits Podcast, I've been a hobbit and my name was Jonesy. You can find me at Great Greek Buffalo on uh, Instagram, at Marky Stardust on Twitter, or you can find Joshua and I at Two Wizards Pod C1 on Twitter or Two Wizards Podcast on Instagram, which we literally have stopped updating and I think we're just going to delete it. But Joshua, do you. Well, can you reach well, the good people? Yeah, well, well, well yeah, and, and actually, Jonesy, it's also, and maybe it's the Fosters, maybe it's the Lovecraft. I'm, I'm just putting together that even though this is the Two Hobbits podcast, all of our sort of communication platforms keep talking about two wizards. Am I, am I seeing an ultraviolet right now? Like what? What? Uh, okay. Anyway, 
people people who want to uh, reach me directly, you can find me on Twitter at Plaid Barbarian. And uh, yeah, I'm just oh man, I I know Crawford Tillinghast had that machine that could make people kind of feel different things and. And, and yeah, maybe it's a combination of Fosters. Maybe it's a combination of Lovecraft. And and but but yet, I feel strangely drawn to these two kind of gel tabs that uh, uh, Gershon left for us here. Yeah, you wanna? Well, you know what? We'll, we'll we'll call it good, guys. Thank you for joining us for another uh, installment of the Two Hobbits podcast. My name is Ben yes, Jonesy, indeed. and I was a Hobbit. I'm. Joshua and I was a hobbit. Take take care, everyone. And uh, Jonesy, here here we go with these little tablets. I yeah, guess. take care, and uh, we'll take these pills. And here we go. And um, okay, I am um, okay. That's I I feel no. I mm. Joshua, I don't think I think I'm getting it too. I don't know. I, I, good what's up buddy what you got no i'm feeling like i was talking before about feeling taller and my feet feeling shorter i'm i'm getting more of that feeling do you hear that it's a pounding you know i do i do joshua who's mark who's josh yeah, who's Josh? Whoa, who's Josh? The... Oh, I don't like. Weird. I don't much care for this Josh show. I... This is this is weird. What is Josh? What is Josh? Who is Mark? Who's Jonesy? Where oh is God, I'm gonna get... end and the other begin. I'm gonna get so sick. I'm gonna get so sick. No, it's it's not okay. We're 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 two hobbits and right. Oh, there was a little bit, a little bit. Oh. My back, kill me. I'm on my back, kill me now. Growing taller, beard coming in. He rolled upon his back, and after that, I killed.